This is sermon number 12 in the series we've been doing with Christopher Love on 2 Peter 1.10 Wherefore the rather brethren give all diligence to make your calling and election sure. The doctrine I am yet upon is this, that Christians ought to put forth a great deal of diligence to make this sure to their souls that they are effectually called by Jesus Christ to grace and glory. In the prosecution of which I have gone over many particulars, there remains now only one use more to dispatch about the subject. And then I pass to the third point drawn from from these words. And the use shall be of consolation. From all that hath been said, touching the assurance of our effectual calling, I shall only direct my discourse to lay down six or seven consolatory conclusions to those Christians who are effectually called, yet happily have not a sensible assurance of their own calling. First, take this for a truth that assurance is necessary not for the being, but for the well-being of a Christian. It is not necessary to his estate, but to his comfort. It is not necessary as food is to the life, but only as physic is to the body. A man cannot live without food. A man may live without physic. Assurance is but as a comfortable cordial to the soul. Grace is as food to keep the soul alive. Though you do want assurance, this cordial to bear you up. (coughs) Secondly, that many of God's dear children, they may lie a very long time in the want of this assurance touching their effectual calling. Psalm 88, it is said of He-Man, verses 14, 15, 16, Lord, why hast thou cast off my soul, and why hast thou hid thy face from me? Mark his complaint. I am ready to die. Was this only a fit of desertion, or was it a a continued act? Yes, verse 16, From my youth up I suffer thy terrors. I am distracted, and thy fierce wrath goes over me. He man lay under the Uh, state of desertion from his childhood for here he tells you his estate that he was not troubled for a day or two or three and then his troubles were over but from his youth up he lay uh, lay under this uh, perplexity that he thought God had cast off his soul and the terrors of God lay upon him and yet this man none uh, questions his goodness For he was the man, as Ainsworth thinks, that made this psalm, and sure, God would never honor a wicked man to be a penman of the scripture. The psalm is called a golden psalm, and it is so called because hereby he would teach afflicted consciences. They may from their youth up lie under great horror and lie under sad suspense concerning their everlasting estate, and yet uh, they may have grace at the root for all this. And Heman doth not only express as if he had an ordinary trouble of mind, but he expresses it that he lay under an extraordinary weight of God's wrath. Verse 7, Thou hast laid me in the lowest pit of darkness and in the deep, 
and thy wrath, it lies heavy upon me. He did even lie and sink in his own thoughts under the sense of God's wrath upon him. This, therefore, is another comfortable uh, conclusion that godly men may not only by fits and starts, but for a long time, for many years together, lie under a state of spiritual desertion. For some men think of Heman that he was above threescore years of age when he wrote this psalm, yet from his youth up till that age he lay under this horror and perplexity. Thirdly, that many of God's dear children may be so long plunged under desertion and under the want of assurance that they may refuse and withstand comfort when God offers it to them in the gospel and yet may have grace still. As a man in a fever or distracted by some violent disease, though you bring him a cordial that may abate his disease, the man in a fit will throw the glass against the wall, though it be the only means of his remedy. It is so with godly men. Many times they are so accustomed to sadness and the want of assurance that they may refuse comforts when God offers them. Psalm 77, 2. It is the speech of Asaph. My soul refuseth to be comforted. A strange speech. Though he was offered comfort, yet his soul refused it. Here then, beloved, this may be a great, a very great prop to thee that thou mayest so long be accustomed to a course of doubting that thou mayest refuse comfort when God tenders it and yet be a gracious heart still. Fourthly, and this is more comfortable yet, that rather than God will let his people live and die without assurance, he will work assurance in you by a miracle or by some unusual or extraordinary way. A famous instance you have for this of a gentlewoman that once lived in this city. It's uh, Mr. Bolton that relates the story. One uh, Mistress Honeywood, who was a famous professor of religion and a woman that for many years was much troubled in mind for the want of her assurance. At length there came a minister to her who endeavored to settle her hopes and comforts in Jesus Christ and he urging promises to her she took it with a kind of indignation and anger that he should offer to present any promise to her to whom she thought it did not belong and uh, having a Venice glass in her hand she holds up the glass and said speak no more to me of salvation for I shall as surely be damned as this poor Venice glass shall be broken against the wall, throwing it with all her force to break it. But it pleased God, by a miraculous providence, to preserve the glass whole. The minister, seeing this, took up the glass and said, Behold, God must by a miracle work faith in you before you will believe. And from that day, the story saith, she was a, a woman very strong in the assurance of God's love. Here you see how God did indulge the infirmity of his poor servant. Rather than thou shalt live and die without assurance, God will bring it 
about even by a miracle. This woman, it may be, had died unassured if God had not confirmed her by some unusual way. I have read likewise in the book of, of Martyrs of Mr. Glover that all the while he was in prison, he was under a state of desertion and very much clouded in his comforts and could not have any apprehension of God's love to his soul. And yet when he came to Smithfield and saw the stake and the fire in which he was to be burned, he cried out, I have found him. I have found him. And uh, professed of himself that he was full of joy, as full of joy as his heart could hold. The Lord made the very sight of the stake to be an inlet to present joy. One would have thought that the sight of the stake could have uh, daunted him, whereas he then grew most confident. Fifthly, that though grace in thy heart be unchangeable, yet the sense and feeling of thine own grace is subject to great variation and change. Grace in itself is unchangeable. All the devils in hell cannot pluck the meanest believer out of Christ's hand. Uh, Those whom thou hast given me, I will keep, saith Christ, and none shall take them from me. The foundation of God stands sure, though thy knowledge that thou buildest upon that foundation may not be sure to thee. The Lord knows who are his, though thou mayest not. Grace itself is not changeable. Though thy feeling of grace is subject to many alterations and changes, Though grace itself be an unshaken foundation, yet our feeling of grace is not so. In our feeling of grace we are like the air, sometimes clear, sometimes cloudy. We are like the sea, sometimes ebbing, sometimes flowing, ebbing in your comforts as well as flowing in your graces. Believers in their feeling of grace are like the trees of the field, sometimes flourishing, green and growing another time at the fall of the leaf like a withered stump. So are Christians touching their own feeling. Their apprehension of their graces is subject to much change, though their graces be not so. Sixthly, that the want of assurance is not simply prejudicial to the salvation of a Christian, though it be prejudicial to the consolation of a Christian. It is no way prejudicial to your salvation. But you may be saved though you are not assured. For first, this want of assurance is no prejudice to your free access to the throne of grace. You may come freely to present your requests to God, though you are not assured of acceptance. As it is the saying of an author, though God shows thee not his face, yet he may lend thee his ear when thou comest to him in prayer. God lends many a Christian an ear in prayer, though they see not his face nor the glimpse of his favor. Secondly, thy want of assurance shall not hinder thy success in prayer, but thou must uh, go away with an ample return, though thou dost not go away with fullness of comfort. Benjamin, when he was with Joseph in Egypt, he had a token of love from Joseph, a golden cup in his sack, though he knew it not. 
this is a lively emblem of, of the carriage of our Joseph, Jesus Christ, to his young Benjamins, who may put a love token in your hearts and may give you a golden cup and give you grace and you know not that grace is there. Lastly, it does not hinder your reconciliation, but you may be at peace with God, though you know not that the agreement is made up. There may be real friendship between God and a believer, though there may be some seeming enmity. Thou holdest me for thine enemy, saith Job. Yet God did not, though he thought so. Zion said, The Lord hath forsaken me. And may God and my God have for, uh, forgotten me. Isaiah 49:14. God hath not done so, for He tells them a little before, almost in one breath, though a mother may forget her sucking child, yet will I not forget you. So that there may be some seeming jars when there is no enmity at all between God and you. Seventhly, that Christians who have attained the strongest and highest degree of faith have yet had many defects and doubtings mingled with their faith. Lord, I believe, Mark 9, yet help my unbelief. Yet that man attained to a high pitch of, of faith, 1 Thessalonians 3.10, night and day we pray exceedingly for you that we may see your face and perfect that which is wanting in your faith. Now you must not take these Thessalonians as if they were new converts or a people weak in the faith, but herein lies the emphasis that though these Thessalonians were the most eminent Christians of all the world, yet they had a great defect in their faith. Therefore compare this with 1 Thessalonians 1, 7 and 8. You were examples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith to Godward is spread abroad. The people in every place spake of the great measure of faith that was in the godly people of this church. And yet, though their faith was so eminent, and they, Christians, so eminent as they were, yet they had some defects and they had somewhat lacking in their faith for all this. See also Psalm 55.5 and Psalm 77. So that here is a very great comfort for believers that the strongest Christians in the faith have had great defects that have attended their graces. Thus, having finished these seven comfortable conclusions, because I would have no deluded sinner nuzzled up in his uh, presumptuous per, uh, persuasions of his own blessedness when he is a cursed man and designed for hell, I have two or three sad conclusions to lay down for all you that harbor groundless and presumptuous persuasions of your effectual callings when you are not. First, you that nourish presumptuous persuasions of your effectual calling when you are not, take this conclusion to dread your hearts, that it is likely you shall never be effectually called by Jesus Christ. There is no man so unlikely to be truly called by Christ 
as that man that thinks he is called when he is not. Matthew 9, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Righteous men, that is, uh, that thought they were righteous, and in their own eye thought they had grace, and were as good as the best. I came not, saith Christ, to, to call them, but sinners. That is, sinners that see their sin and see their need of a Savior and are sensible of their lost and undone condition without Christ. Christ came to save them and to call them to repentance. Of all men in the world, you are most unlikely to be called that nourish ungrounded persuasions of your effectual calling. Secondly, whilst you live in this world, you are mere strangers to that inward and spiritual joy which every true believer feels and findeth by Jesus Christ. You do not intermeddle with those inward solaces and sweet enjoyments of heart which every sincere believer hath in Jesus Christ. A man that hath assurance upon good ground, he is so filled with joy that it will bear him up against all the sufferings and sorrows he may meet with here in the world. He that hath assurance, no suffering can daunt him as Adolphus Clarebeckius, when he uh, was burning at the stake. He was so filled with the assurance of God's love that he saith of himself, I think in my heart there is not a merrier heart in the world than mine is. And so another martyr burning at the stake saith, I taste as much sweetness and find as much ease now I am in the flames as if I lay upon a bed of roses the fullness of his joy in the assurance of God's love made him willingly undergo any torment. Mr. Sanders was in prison until he was in prison. Bainan said when he was in the fire, I feel no more than if I were in a bed of down. Whereas thou that harboreth false persuasions, thy hopes will shrink when thou comest to suffer like cloth not well, well woven on a rainy day, thy delusions will never bear up thy spirit to so high a pitch as these are. This is thy misery. Thou wilt never have that sweet peace and rejoicing in thy heart believers have who are assured upon scripture grounds. Thirdly, take this for thy dread that thou wilt be thrown into hell before thou art aware. This is the speech of Mr. Bolton that man that takes up a false persuasion of his effectual calling when he is not, he is like unto a man that is in a pleasant dream, who dreams he is a king, and hath a kingdom, and hath treasures full of silver and gold. And yet when he awakes, behold, the man hath nothing. It compares him likewise to a man that is asleep upon the mast of a ship. He is in a golden dream, and dreams of kingdoms and of thousands which he hath, and happily in a moment the wind ariseth the ship is tossed upon the waves and the man is tumbled into the ocean and drowned it is so with many men who nourish golden dreams and hopes that heaven is theirs and Christ theirs when as alas they are tumbled and thrown into hell before they are aware and this should be a dreadful meditation to thy heart that harborest presumptuous persuasions of thy effectual calling when thou art not. 
Thus I have done in 11 sermons with this doctrine touching effectual calling. I pass now to the third and last point drawn from these words. And that is that Christians ought to put forth a great deal of diligence to make this sure to their souls that they are eternally elected by God to life and salvation. Give diligence to make your calling and election sure. There are many profitable points to be handled in the dispatch of this doctrine. I shall only, in this remnant of time, prosecute a few. And first I shall show you what election is. Secondly, whether a man may be sure of his own election, seeing election is an act from eternity. How can a man be sure of that which was done in God's counsel before we had a being? Thirdly, by what discoveries may a man infallibly judge that he is elected? In the discussion of this doctrine, I begin with the first, what election is? which that you may know I shall lay down this brief description of it election is an eternal decree or purpose of God whereby he hath freely chosen out of the mass of mankind a small company of men and women that shall come to everlasting life and salvation by Jesus Christ this is election and here in this description there are these things to be taken notice of first I call it an eternal purpose because Though a man be not justified from eternity, yet he is elected from eternity. God from eternity had a purpose that man should be justified and should be called and should be saved. Election is from eternity. Though vocation, justification, and glorification be not so. Hence you read in scripture when it speaks of election, Ephesians 1.4, He hath elected us in Christ before the foundation of the world. But it is never said so of justification. God had a purpose to make us happy and a purpose to call us in time and a purpose to justify us from eternity though the acting of this purpose is in due time fulfilled. Secondly, I call it a purpose whereby he could freely choose and this I do in opposition to that papistical tenet that God doth predestinate or elect men to salvation upon the foresight of good works a most abominable opinion and takes off the freeness of this act of God's election 2 Timothy 1.9 not according to our works but according to his own purpose and grace so I, I say thirdly whereby God doth freely choose out of the mass of mankind a few to obtain life and salvation in opposition to those that hold for universal redemption and universal grace as origin and from him many more have been tainted with this error to hold election universal and so many of the papists now the scripture tells us that many are called but few are chosen election signifies a choice now a choice the very word imports a rejecting of some and a calling out of others the word election imports that all shall not be saved origin held this that all men should be saved and that election shall extend to every man yea the very devils at the day of judgment shall be saved which is an opinion among Christians not to be named for election 
belongs but to a few. Fourthly, I say that is to bring them to eternal life and salvation, therefore called ordination to eternal life, Acts 13.48. Secondly, whether, a may, uh, whether may a Christian in this life be assured of his eternal, eternal election, for as much as election was done in the decree of God before ever he had a being, or the world was. Therefore, seeing we are not privy to God's decree and counsel, how can it be said that we may know and be assured of our eternal election. Indeed, the Papists, they beat down this doctrine. And yet, hence it is that in the Council of Trent, there was this canon made that if any man should say he was bound to believe that he was of the number of them that God hath predestinated or elected to life, let him be an accursed man. They did endeavor to beat down assurance and held that all that a man could have must be only a conjectural assurance or some kind of hopes of salvation and no other. Now, that you might not err in this point, see what the scripture speaks in this case, that though election be an act of God from eternity, yet a believer may firmly and fully know his own election. And this I shall make good by several places of scripture. Read Luke 10.20. Rejoice not, saith Christ to his disciples, that you have power to cast out devils and that they are subject to you, but rather rejoice in this, that your names are written in the book of life. That is, rejoice not that you can work miracles that wicked men can do that are not elected, <clears throat> but rather rejoice that your names are written in the book of life. That is, that in God's decree you are elected to salvation. Now how could they rejoice unless they knew this? So 1 Thessalonians 1.4 Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. The apostle takes it for granted that believers did know they were elected. And so in Ephesians 1 3, 4, and 5, The Lord hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world was, uh, having predestinated us to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ. Many more scriptures I might urge, but in the mouth of two or three witnesses it is enough to confirm every truth. But now, though the scriptures be thus clear, Yet there are some objections that seemingly oppose this truth which I must satisfy. The Papists, as far as I have read in their writings, I find five objections they draw from Scripture against this truth, that a man may be assured of his election. For, say they, it was an act of God's done before we had a being, and how can we be assured of that? I will, therefore, beloved, first pr produce those Scriptures that they pretend will overthrow this point and then will take off what seems to make against it. The first text they urge is 1 Peter 1.17. Pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. This scripture, say they, binds us pass our time in fear and if so, then we cannot be assured of our election but we must fear all the days of our life whether we are elected or no. To this, I shall answer briefly 
you must know that the fear that the Holy Ghost here presses, that men should pass their time in fear, is not meant of a fear about our election, but it is meant of a fear of sin. That we must not sin against God, but fear God, and fear to provoke God by our sin. And if you ask how this appears, I make it appear plainly. Thus, uh, for verse 18, it is said, Knowing, beloved, that you are not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, etc. Now, this verse proves clearly that they knew they were redeemed by Christ's blood, and so, by consequence, knew their election. Therefore, the apostle did not press a fear to bend down the knowledge of their election, but pass your time in fear, that is fear, to offend God and fear to sin against him. Another objection they, object, uh, they urge is this, the scripture they, they say, doth often commend fear to us, and surely fear and assurance cannot stand together. Proverbs 28.14, Blessed is the man that feareth always. Now if a man must always fear, then the most a man can have is hope, and so hang between hope and fear all our days. To which I answer, that the fearing always, which Solomon annexed blessedness unto, is not meant of the fear about a man's election, but only a fear to sin against God. And if you ask me how that appears, read the whole verse. Blessed is the man that feareth always, but he that hardens his heart shall run into mischief. Now marked by the antithesis, it is apparent that fear there is not a fear of our everlasting estate, but only a fear in opposition to hardness of heart in wicked men that go on in a course of sin. Another place they urge is 1 Corinthians 10.12. Wherefore let him that thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Now, say they, the scripture tells us that every man, though never so firm as he thinks about his election, yet he must take heed that he uh, may fall from grace and be damned for all of this. Now, by way of answer to this, I would lay down two things. First, the apostle does not speak of men that have a grounded assurance of their election, but to men that lie in carnal security and have deluded persuasions of their good estate. And this appears by the text, for he saith, let him that thinks he stands. He does not say, let him that stands, for he cannot fall, but he that thinks he stands. Those men that nourish presumptuous and ungrounded persuasions that they are in a good estate and in a happy condition, let them take heed lest they fall. Secondly, the falling here is not meant a falling away from grace or a falling away finally after election. That is impossible. But it is only meant of a falling into sin. And so the meaning is this, let him that thinks he stands, that that is, that thinks he is strong in grace and stands upon his own legs, let that man take heed lest he fall into sin. Now a man may take heed of falling into sin, yet no way question his assurance. And if you ask how I make it appear that this is the intendment and the scope of the place, I answer by the context. Read the foregoing verse. Let us not tempt Christ as they tempted him. Let us not murmur as some of them murmured. 
For these things happen to them for examples, and are written for our admonition. Therefore let him that thinketh he stands take heed lest he fall. As much as if he should say, You have here seen some men fall into sin, you have heard some men murmur, some men tempt Christ, this should make you afraid, lest you fall into sin and suffer the punishment they did. But what is this to the denying of assurance? That men cannot be assured of their election. Another place they urge also is Philippians 2.12. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, say they, if a man must work out and carry on the business of his salvation with fear and trembling, then surely a man can never be assured in this life of his election. To which I answer, that fear and trembling there spoken of is not a fear and trembling in opposition to the assurance of our election, but in opposition to that carnal security and that sinful dependence upon our own strength. This is apparent in the next words, for it is God that worketh in you to will the will and the deed. Therefore, because you have no strength of your own and no power of your own to do anything, therefore fear and tremble in that regard. And secondly, fear and trembling may very well be consistent with this grace of assurance, for we read in Psalm 2.11, Rejoice in the Lord with trembling. You may fear, and yet rejoice also. So Psalm 5.7, As for me, I will come into thy house in the multitude of thy mercies, and in thy fear I will worship towards thine holy temple. Here is fear and confidence in the mercies of God joined together to show that fear and assurance may be may very well be consistent with each other. But then they object, how can this be? For John saith, perfect love casteth out fear. I answer that though John saith, perfect love casteth out fear, yet John doth not say that imperfect love casteth out fear. Now in this life, our love is imperfect, and therefore mixed with fear. But in heaven our love is perfect, and so casts out all fear. So that still, this makes nothing against us, but that a man may have a grounded assurance of his eternal election. Another place they object is Romans 11.20, Be not high-minded, but fear. To this I answer, these words are not spoken of fearing our election, that we should fear whether we are elected or not, but serves to beat down any opinion of our own righteousness as if we were therefore accepted of God and to keep us from insulting over the rejected Jews now that we are taken in in their room. One scripture more, which indeed is the main pillar they rest upon, is Romans 11.34. Who hath known the mind of the Lord or who hath been his counselor? Here say the papists, the scripture challengeth any man in the world to come forth and say that he knows God's mind by God's mind is meant God's decree. And here Paul challengeth all that no man knows the decree of God from eternity. And therefore, if no man knows the mind of God, then certainly none know their election, for that is God's mind and God's decree. And this they hold an undeniable argument. And here... To satisfy you in this scripture, I shall lay down three things. First, when it is said, no man knows the mind of God, nor uh, no man is his, is his counselor, this doth hold true that no man knows the mind or decree of the Lord touching other men's election. The apostle doth not 
speak this as if no man knew God's mind about his own, but about other men's election, who are elected and who are not. That is the scope of the place. The Gentiles, they thought all the Jews were damned men, and they censured and vaunted over them. And now saith Paul, none knows God's mind concerning others, whether they shall be saved or damned while they are in this world. Secondly, no man knows the mind of the Lord in this sense, that is, so as to give a reason of God's decree. Why God did decree this and decree that? Why God did choose Peter and not elect Judas? No man knows the reason of God's decree and of his ways. Thirdly, no man knows the mind of the Lord, that is, no man knows God's decree, looking upon it alone, but by bringing down God's secret will to his revealed will. And so we may know his decrees. I may make use of that place, Romans 10.8, let no man say, I will ascend up to heaven to fetch Christ thence. But what saith the word? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth. Trust to that, as if he should say, let no man think to know God's decrees by going into heaven, and there searching into God's decrees. For that he cannot do. But look upon the word, and there he shall find whom... God hath elected and decreed to save. 1 Corinthians 2.16 <clears throat> No man can know by looking barely upon the decree. But if we compare God's decree with his word and from the word look upon them that are elected we may easily know whether we are elected or no. Which puts me upon the third head premise how can a man be how a man may be assured in his soul, own soul that he is elected to life and salvation by God the Father. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B Canada T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. 
For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.